You're listening to The Main Course, where food is serious business. Listen along for insights, strategies, forecasts, and thought leadership from the front lines of food with your host, Barbara Castiglia. Welcome to The Main Course. I'm Barbara Castiglia of Modern Restaurant Management. Today we're going to have a meaty conversation, and you'll understand what I mean by that as I introduce our guest. So with us today is Paul Shapiro, who's the author of Clean Meat, How Growing Meat Without Animals Will Revolutionize Dinner and the World. And he's also the CEO of The Better Meat Company. So Paul, welcome. You know, I've had a chance to research your background and all. And, you know, what really struck me is, you know, you're not the average entrepreneur. What you're doing is really a true passion project. So I really wanted to know what got you so passionate about this? You know, where did that spark come from, you know, that this was something you wanted to pursue? Well, thanks, Barbara. It's great to be talking with you. And I agree, it will be a meaty conversation. And let's get to the meat of the matter right now. Uh, So in short, uh, to answer your question, Barbara, you know, I grew up with a love of animals. And I have always felt that we, meaning human beings, uh, treat animals in ways that are uh, pretty deplorable. And we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to hear about it. We don't like to think about it. But I, I do think it's one of those things that when future generations learn about how we treated animals, especially the animals who we raise for food, they're not going to be uh, so um, so pleased. In fact, I think they're going to be pretty shocked by our treatment of animals who we use for eggs and pork and chicken and, and veal and so on. And so I have uh, spent a lot of my life uh, really looking into ways that we might be able to improve our relationship with our fellow creatures on the planet. And uh, part of that involved uh, lobbying for many years to try to pass laws to improve our treatment of farm animals. So, for example, passing laws to require that, uh, for example, egg-laying chickens not be confined in tiny cages for their entire lives, which is the norm in the egg industry. Um, But About uh, five or six years ago, I started wondering if technology would do even more to help improve the treatment of animals than just trying to persuade people that what we're doing is wrong. And if you look at the ways that other categories of animals have been benefited, just as one example, if you look at the 19th century, America was a massive whaling nation. And today we're a massive whale watching nation. And so, you know, if you would ask somebody in 1850, you know, would there be a major industry of people who pay merely to go on boats just to look at whales rather than hunt them? They would have laughed. They would have thought that was uh, totally um, unrealistic. And the way that happened, though, the way that we changed our view of whales wasn't because of sustainability or humane concerns. It was because kerosene was invented and it rendered our exploitation of whales obsolete. All of a sudden, we had a much better way to light our homes than by whale oil because kerosene was cheaper and more efficient and burned better. And so we switched. And then kerosene eventually got displaced by electricity. And now we're starting to uh, look at other ways of of lighting and powering our civilization too. But uh, the point remains that We stopped hunting whales, not because we cared about whales, but because of superior alternatives that were invented. And so that led me uh, down this path of figuring 
well, maybe there are ways that we can create new products that we can eat that will give us all the same tastes and pleasures and benefits of the meat that most people want to eat without all the downsides of having to raise all these animals, create so many greenhouse gas emissions in the process, and uh, do all the other things we have to do to produce meat, which is a very resource-intensive food. That's why I wrote the book Clean Meat and, and entered the entrepreneurial life of, of a, a alternative protein startup that I'm, I'm now uh, endeavoring in as well. So um, explain what the Better Meat Company is, you know, kind of what you do and explain how, you know, how the company is positioned in food service because it's not, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a different position than say, you know, the Impossible Burger and, and all of the Impossible Foods other that people are kind of more familiar with. Yeah. So, you know, it's no longer any secret, Barbara, that raising animals for food just takes up a lot of land. Takes up a lot of water, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. It's, as I said, really resource intensive, especially when you compare it to producing plant protein. The problem is that meat consumption is going up, not down. People are eating more meat today than we've ever eaten before. That's true in the United States, that's true in China and India and all the places where it's going to matter the most in the future. Demand for meat is projected to continue going up not down. And so companies that you mentioned, like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, have a solution that is a really good solution, um, but it's only one solution. And their solution is essentially to take plants like peas or soybeans and convert them into products that look and taste like meat. So we can essentially have the meat that we want uh, without having to use so many resources to produce it. However, that's only one solution. And it's still, despite having a lot of uh, financial success for those companies, is still a very tiny portion of the market, way less than 1% of the meat that is sold in the United States today comes from plant-based meat. Now, if you look, for example, in the milk aisle, about 14% about of all of the fluid milk being sold now is coming from plant-based milks. But when it comes to plant-based meat, it's still way less than 1%. So another option is to, instead of taking plants and convert them into animal-like products, is simply to take cells from the animals themselves and grow those cells outside of the animal, something that's often referred to as clean meat or cultivated meat. And this is a novel technology that allows us to grow real meat, not a meat substitute, not a meat alternative, but real actual animal meat that is grown without the animal. And I've eaten this kind of meat many times. It's quite good, tastes like meat because it is meat, but it's not yet commercialized. It's still very expensive and very, uh, there's very little regulatory approval for it anywhere on the planet, and the U.S. has still not approved it for sale either. So then you have, so now we've got plant-based meat, we've got actual clean meat, and then there's a third option, and that's where my company, The Better Meat Co., uh, comes in. And what we do is take plant protein formulations that are combinations of proteins, fibers, fats, and flavors, all allergen-free, non-GMO, clean label, and we process these in ways that allow them to seamlessly blend directly into animal meat so that meat companies can hybridize their products. So for example, we're partnered with Purdue Farms, the major chicken company that utilizes our plant protein formulations in their chicken nuggets and tenders and patties for a product line that they call Purdue Chicken Plus. And that's a product that's 50% chicken, 50% plant-based. It's sold in 7,100 grocery stores. And impressively, the Food Network recently found it to be the number one best tasting chicken nugget in America. 
So imagine, you know, the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America is only 50% chicken. Just imagine how many resources we could save if all of the chicken nuggets were 50% chicken rather than being based solely on chicken. So when you take these three technologies like plant-based meat, clean meat, and blending or hybridized meats, you start seeing this as a portfolio of different protein options. So in the same way, for example, that we consider fossil fuels to be such a problem that you want lots of alternatives. You want wind, you want solar, you want geothermal, and more. The factory farming of animals is so problematic that you also want lots of alternatives, plant-based meat, clean meat, hybridized meat, and so on. And the Better Meat Co. specializes in that third pillar of hybridizing meat to allow for the current meat products that people are eating today to have a much lighter footprint on the planet. So you've hit on it a few times, but what are some of the characteristics that actually makes your product better? Sure. Well, we make meat better. And by that, I mean, not just better for the planet, though it certainly is better for the planet. Uh, however, we're going to improve on nutritionals. So when you put our product into a ground meat product, you're going to reduce saturated fat, reduce cholesterol, reduce total calories while increasing fiber. And most importantly, it's going to taste better. So as an example, in focus groups with the Purdue Chicken Plus Nuggets, uh, consumers have found that well, in consumer focus groups, what has been found is that about 60% of people just can't tell the difference at all. 30% prefer the taste of the blended nugget, and 10% prefer the taste of the solely chicken nugget. So in other words, 90% of people say either no difference or actively better. And that's in the chicken space. In the burger space, there was recently a focus group of 60 middle schoolers who were given blind taste testing of the conventional burger that they are currently getting, which is solely beef versus a burger that is blended with Better Meat Co. formulas at a one-third inclusion rate. So it's a two-thirds beef, one-third plant-based patty. And 88%, 88%, nearly 9 out of 10 of the students found that the blended burger tasted better. They didn't know it was blended. They just knew that it was. there were two different patties they were being asked to test. And the reason why you have such overwhelming preference is because not only are we enhancing the flavor, but we're also enhancing the texture that we use functional fibers that help retain more moisture within the product to make it juicier and to improve on the yield for the processor as well. So there's economic benefits as well as taste benefits. So there's a lot of ways that we help to make the meat better. And those are just some of them. So can you just go over, you know, what are your current product line is? Yeah. So we offer product formulations that can be blended into ground beef, pork, chicken, turkey, fish, and crab. So whether you're making fish sticks or crab cakes or sausages or meatballs or burgers, you can use our ingredients to make better meat, to improve on the nutritionals, to make it taste better, to reduce the footprint that the product has on the planet to improve your own sustainability. There's so many benefits to it. And you work in the B2B place. So you work directly, you go to the meat producers, uh, though that's your clientele. Why position yourself there instead of, you know, coming out with a, you know, like a consumer product? Uh, you know, it's a good question, Barbara. I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, maybe there's a pivot at some point in the future for us. But 
right now, I think we have a much better impact by selling to the big food companies than we do by trying to create something on our own to compete with them. Just as an example, uh, Purdue said in a news article recently that Chicken Plus has now grown from a couple years ago being 0% of their nuggets to now being 20% of their frozen chicken nugget sales. So you just think about the impact from a sustainability perspective that we have by helping Purdue to do better than we would if we created a new brand that was a fraction of 1% of the market um, that we are trying to compete and draw away from the, the heavier footprint products. So I really believe that we can do more by partnering with big food companies than we can by going it alone. But you never know what will happen in the future. And just one point to mention, meat producers are certainly our customers, but it's really meat users who are also our customers. So it could be not just the Purdue's of the world, but also the meat snack companies or frozen dinner makers. Like if you're making a frozen lasagna that has a meat sauce can put us in there or, um, you know, pet food and more. So it doesn't have to be a meat producer. It's just really anybody who is making meat products that want to uh, make better meat. So when you first started meeting with all these manufacturers, um, what, what, what was the response? You know, were they interested in, in hearing what you had to say? Was it something that they had, you know, kind of been in talks about, um, you know, as a way to, you know, expand their own product lines? Or was it a tough sell? Well, it varies by customer. So I'll tell a quick story that I think is analogous here. So if you consider the print film market back in the 1990s, you had Kodak and you had Canon, and they were vying for supremacy in the print film market. They each knew about digital. In fact, Kodak had originally invented digital, but Kodak was concerned that digital would cannibalize its core business. Because if you have digital, all of the services that Kodak offered from print film to, you know, the negatives and everything else that they had, the Kodak one hour photoshops, everything else uh, would be essentially rendered obsolete. And so they tried to suppress it within their own ranks and they didn't embrace digital. Whereas Canon knew that it would cannibalize their core products, but they thought it was the wave of the future. And so they embraced digital. We all know what happened in the end. Kodak declared bankruptcy and Canon is now the largest manufacturer of digital cameras on the planet. And there are some meat companies that are very forward thinking and that see that type of a story and they want to be like Canon. They don't want to be like Kodak. And so for those companies, it's not really a difficult sell because they welcome innovation and they're embracing what they view as the wave of the future. There are other meat companies that I think are more in the Kodak camp, and they are trying to defend the status quo and are hoping that agriculture will be static rather than dynamic. And for those companies, frankly, it is a harder sell because it's it's a cultural shift and something that they fear rather than, that, than embracing it. So... Uh, some of the companies, more forward thinking, some of the other ones, not so much. But I think there's enough of the forward thinking companies in the meat industry to really make a dent and make a difference and create a new type of protein portfolio in the future. Whereas in the past, people really believed or they thought when you, they heard the word protein, they thought of like, you know, a hunk of flesh from a once living animal's body. And in the future, people are gonna think about protein far differently. They're gonna think of it in a far more diverse way. So there'd be yes, still protein from animals, but also protein coming from plants, protein coming from animal cells, proteins coming in a hybridized form. And even 
even proteins coming from microbial fermentation, which is a whole other pillar uh, that you can uh, that people are embracing now to try to make um, microbial protein uh, without having to uh, raise whole plants or whole animals to make it. So you kind of hit on this of talking about the whelling industry and just your just example your example now with the cameras. You wrote that new technologies bring a risk of obsolescence in turn leading to great resistance. So I guess, can you, uh, you know, elaborate on, you know, how this relates historically? You know, we already talked about the whaling example and then, you know, to to what you're doing now. Sure. Well, I think there's a, a lot of examples that you can think of. Um, so as an example, you know, for a millennia, the fastest way anyone had to get around was on four legs and you need us and you needed a saddle. And eventually, uh, you had the invention of the combustion engine that allowed us to travel in far more effective ways. And that rendered uh, numerous industries obsolete, not just horse breeding, but uh, the people who made the whips that we had to beat to the horses with to get them to labor for us. People who made the saddles, um, even the oat growers. When the car and tractor were invented, the oat market crashed in America because the biggest consumer of oats, horses, were no longer being bred into existence. So, uh, you know, that's one example among many, but you can even look in, in at what happened when we stopped using quill pens. There was a big geese industry where we had to live pluck these geese for their quills for millennia. In fact, you know, for a very long time, that was the, the writing utensil of choice. Uh, and even Thomas Jefferson had his own flock of geese because he was such a prolific writer that he had his own flock of geese at Monticello to supply him with all the quills that he needed because they ran out pretty quickly. But when the fountain pen was invented, it rendered the exploitation of these birds obsolete because now you had a pen that essentially you could keep writing for long periods of time without having to stop and you know dip the the feather in the inkwell and all that. It was just a much better way to write. Uh, we stopped using carrier pigeons not because we cared about the pigeons, but because the telegraph was invented. The list goes on and on. E even if you think about it in a non-animal sense, if you think about a forward-thinking company like Netflix, which everybody knows that Netflix block out of business because we were all very content to stop going to video stores and be able to watch anything on demand at any point that we wanted. Um, but even Netflix started as a DVD uh, mailing company. And they knew that streaming would cannibalize their core business on which their entire company was founded. And yet they still did it because they wanted to be on the, on the cutting edge. And they rendered their core business on which they were founded as a mail-in DVD company to uh, be totally obsolete and went to streaming. So there's lots of examples of new technologies rendering old industries, even huge industries, obsolete. Um, and this is, I think, what's going to happen because of efficiency reasons with meat. Right now, if you want to, let's say, uh, produce uh, meat for consumption, let's just take uh, beef as an example. You are going to have to grow vast quantities of corn or soy to feed the cows, which takes a long time. You actually have to, have to breed the cows and then wait in a traditional sense about a year uh, for conventional beef. Um, or even two years if it's grass-fed beef before you can slaughter them. Well, peas and soybeans grow much faster, and it's far more efficient to eat them directly than it is to grow those animals. And so if you can convert peas or soybeans into foods that look and taste like beef, you can actually, uh, on an efficiency scale, really compete very well with a product that is very hard to innovate on because cows just aren't going to get that much better. It's almost like if you think about... Uh, horses, like the horses we had in the 1850s are not really any that 
from a from a speed perspective, not that much different from the horses we have today, uh, but cars are dramatically different and you can continue getting better and better. And so uh, when you divorce livestock production from meat production, you have a similar effect, just in the same way that cars can continually get better and better, uh, meat can continually get better and better when you divorce meat production from livestock production. And that's especially true when you're not only dealing with plant proteins, but when you go down to the microbial level, if you can start making meat type foods from microbes, then instead of waiting for weeks or months for the crops to grow, you can be harvesting in a matter of hours because microbes replicate at such a rapid rate. Uh, so from an efficiency perspective, I think that over the next decade or two, you are going to see major reductions in cost of the proteins that today are called alternative proteins, but tomorrow will be really more like the conventional proteins. So who are the people who are resistant to this change right now? <laughs> An undiplomatic answer awaits. So, <laughs> um, Well, let me put it this way. There is a divide in the meat industry. Um, there's a divide between the folks who are selling meat to the public, who are quite happy to continue selling other protein products to the public as well, and the actual cattle producers. So for example, the North American Meat Institute um, is partnering with some of the clean meat companies to lobby Congress for rules and regulations that would be fair for the clean meat industry to come on the market. However, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, these are the folks who aren't selling beef to the public, but they're raising cattle. Those are the folks who have a lot more uh, to lose. They feel like they're much more threatened. And so rather than lobbying for rules for fairness, they are lobbying for rules either to ban the sale of these products, to require disparaging labeling on these products, like calling them artificial or lab grown or other, um, other things that would be like a scarlet letter to the consumer, um, or they're trying to restrict other different types of speech so that these companies, instead of calling their products plant-based meat, would have to call it like a plant-based meat substitute or something like that. So there is a battle over the regulations associating uh, with these foods, and it's not that dissimilar to the battle that we've seen in the past on uh, butter and margarine. So uh, for example, when margarine was invented, it was a far cheaper alternative to butter. And rather than trying to compete on cost or on quality or other reasons, what the dairy industry did at the time was they passed laws in dozens of states that taxed margarine to make it more expensive than butter. Some of them banned it altogether. Some of them passed laws requiring that margarine actually be dyed pink so that it would look less appetizing. Um, and that, you know, that's going back to the 19th century when that happened. Uh, today, you even have some members of Congress who have tried to uh, pass a law unsuccessfully to um, ban the terms like soy milk or rice milk um, or coconut milk because they say that consumers are confused as to whether these products are milk or not, uh, which, you know, I find it hard to believe that anybody would think that coconut milk is coming from a cow as opposed to a coconut. Uh, it seems about as likely as somebody believing that peanut butter might have, you know, dairy butter in it. I think that that's hard to imagine. Um, but there's a lot of protectionist efforts that have been going on by some of the folks um, who I had mentioned earlier to uh, try to prevent this ocean of, of advancement in technology and innovation that is occurring in the food industry right now. As you mentioned, there's you know a lot of controversy over the use of the terms meat and milk. Um, where do you think these legal debates are going to you know wind up? Um, and is having um, 
you know, the right guidelines and the foundations set, let everything move forward? Well, I, I think it'll be a battle for some time because I think that there's a, a lot of money at stake. And when that is the case, that, you know, leads to people to take actions that may even be like Hail Mary type actions. Um, you know, we saw what the tobacco industry did as an example to try to maintain its wield on power and dominance. And they, it worked for a long time. Eventually it didn't, but it worked for a very long time. And I think that, that you're going to see something similar uh, here as well. And that's going to be, it's going to make it difficult. But in the end, efficiency will win out. And I think that considering the dire climate situation that we're in and what a smaller footprint on the environment uh, plant proteins have compared to animal proteins, there will be a shift. There will be in the same way that, you know, for example, right now we have uh, gasoline tax and luxury vehicle tax and alcohol and tobacco taxes. Some governments in Europe right now are already talking about meat taxes to try to help uh, reduce meat consumption for the planet planetary purposes. Um, and while that may be a fine idea, I think that over time, though, the cost of these alternatives is going to come down so much that they'll just outcompete. And as long as they're not banned and as long as they don't have to have some horrible descriptor on the label that makes them appeal, you know, makes them seem very unappealing, I think that they'll do just fine in a free marketplace. Yeah. As you mentioned, you know, you sampled lab grown meat, so it's not something that's in the distant future anymore. Um, so what are some of the factors that are fueling these initiatives and, and what factors are holding it back? Well, there's a number of factors that are fueling it. One is a concern for climate purposes, as I mentioned. Another is concern for animal welfare, where, you know, most people are happy to eat meat, but they eat it not because animals were tormented and slaughtered for it. They eat it in spite of that fact. Most people don't want to think about it, but they'd be quite happy to eat meat as long as it was safe and nutritious that didn't come from such violence. Uh, many people would be quite pleased if animals were not locked in cages where they could barely move their entire lives. They'd be quite happy if animals weren't sent to slaughterhouses um, to produce meat. So animal welfare is a big concern for part of this, um, but also the idea that we can make safer meat. You know, right now uh, we're warned to treat raw meat almost like toxic waste. You know, if you have raw meat in your super in the supermarket, you are told you have to keep it separate from your other groceries. You have to put it in different bags. You bring it home and it touches your kitchen counter. You need to disinfect your counter. If you touch with your hands, you need to wash your hands. That's not true for when you buy oranges and, and broccoli, right? Uh, and the reason is because there's feces on the meat. There's E. coli, there's salmonella, there's campylobacter. These are intestinal pathogens that can sicken us if we don't cook the crap out of the meat. I mean that literally. Literally, you cook the crap out of the meat. And uh, the reason why clean meat is often referred to as clean meat is not just as an allusion to clean energy, but also because it's literally cleaner. Just think about it. You don't have to worry so much about intestinal pathogens like E. coli if you're not growing intestines at all, because the clean meat producers are just basically growing the muscle and fat that we want in the meat. And so you're more likely to actually infect the meat with your hands than the meat is to infect you. So from a food safety perspective, there are a lot of benefits to moving away from the type of protein production 
production systems that we have today. So there's environmental, there's animal welfare, there's food safety reasons that are driving it. Now, to answer your question, Barbara, about what's uh, holding it back, one, government regulations that disallow for the sale of these products right now. Um, Singapore has allowed the sale of some clean meat, and there is a restaurant in Singapore that is now selling actual chicken meat that is grown from chicken cells without harming a single chicken. So it's not just theoretical anymore. In Singapore, this is a commercialized product. But in the United States, they have not given regulatory approval yet. However, the USDA and the FDA issued a joint announcement about a year and a half ago saying that they will come up with a joint regulatory framework that will allow for these regulations to uh, to pave the way for commercialization. It's a little bit of a tricky subject because right now, uh, USDA regulates most meat production, whereas FDA regulates cell culture. Um, and this is, of course, meat production from cell culture. So who's going to do it? And, and look, that's what they're trying to figure out right now is which agency will regulate which portion of the production. And once that is done, though, there will be, still be other hurdles. And those hurdles will include getting the price down because it's still a very expensive technology. Um, and then there's also going to be state regulations relating to labeling that might have to that might present hurdles as well. So there are many hurdles to overcome, but I'm confident that the uh, with the right players on board, this technology will become a commercial reality and it will be a protein option for the future. And what kind of time frame in the future do you think? <laughs> well, that's like the multi-billion dollar question here, Barbara. So everybody always asks us, when will clean meat be commercialized? And a, a friend of mine who was like one of the original uh, pioneers in this space has a funny answer. He likes to say that it's always five years out. No matter what date he's asked, it's five years out. <laughs> so uh, I don't believe that though now. And I think that we will see, I mean, it's already, like I said, on sale in Singapore, but I think that we'll see it in the United States. Um, I would say I would be shocked if it weren't within the next year or two. Um, uh, that may seem optimistic by some standards, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Um, you start, you see some companies in the space who have raised tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars to create their own pilot production plants, and they feel pretty bullish that they will be able to sell what they're producing in those pilot plants, and I think with good reason. You had a lot of very logical and sound reasons, uh, you know, kind of making a case for clean meat. Yet there's something about it that still scares people. Um, is it kind of a matter of, of them understanding the process more uh, to make them more comfortable with it? Yes, I think it's important for that we do describe exactly what's happening. But at the same time, I think it's also helpful to remember that any type of novel technology is oftentimes viewed with skepticism when it relates to food. So go back 150 years, and not only were whales dodging harpoons, but the way that people had in-home ice boxes was because we were harvesting big blocks of ice from frozen lakes and rivers and putting them in insulated boats and shipping them around the world to warmer climates so that people could chill their food in their homes. Take the advent of refrigeration, and all of a sudden, you had a much more efficient way to make ice. And so for millennia, the only way that people had had to get ice was from frozen lakes or really from nature. And now we had a human technology that allowed us to make it. Well, the ice barons of the era, and there were ice barons of the era, uh, were livid. 
over this technological innovation, they railed against what they referred to as artificial ice. And what they said was that artificial ice was unnatural. It was against God. It could sicken you. You didn't know if it was safe. You shouldn't give it to your children. You fast forward to today, and we all have artificial ice makers in our homes. We, we call them freezers. We don't think there's anything unnatural about it at all. In fact, we wouldn't even consider living without one, and we probably would be pretty hesitant to consume ice that came from nature. And so Similarly, for millennia, the only way we've had to get meat is from out of animals' bodies. And now, just like we can make ice through human-made technology, we can now make meat through human-made technology. And it should go through rigorous testing, just in the same way that we should make sure that ice that is being produced through technology is safe, which of course it is. Um, but we should remember that in the past, there have been these similar debates and with these types of products today, we don't even think about them as being unnatural in any way. And I suspect in the future that these types of products will be so commonplace and so preferred over the so-called natural versions that there will not be much of a debate as to whether or not uh, we ought to be consuming them. People will be thinking, rather, I'm so glad that we no longer have to do it the way that we used to do it. So if we already have a lot of plant-based options and people are trying them. Um, why is the development of lab-grown meat so critical at this point? Well, it's, it's a great question, Barbara. Um, many people believe with the implicit connotation of what you are suggesting with your question. They think that, well, plant-based meat is doing so well, why go through the technological hassle of recreating meat from the molecular level up? And uh, I think that's a valid point. At the same time, like I said earlier, it's tough to bet everything all on one. So if you were interested in clean energy, you know, some people may say, well, hey, you know, solar is getting so cheap. Why do we need wind? Well, you don't know what's going to be the best, and you might even want a diversified portfolio anyway. So I think it's important to invest in all of the alternatives that are truly better for the planet because you don't know which is going to be the best, and it's probably going to be some combination thereof. As well, I really do believe that some people want what they perceive as the so-called real thing, that they don't want meat substitutes, they want real animal meat for whatever reasons, psychological or otherwise, and clean meat provides that for them. So it will take some time, it is expensive now, but I really do think that it's an important part of the protein portfolio of the future for a variety of reasons. So we focus on restaurants here at the main course. And so I wanted to get what's your view of, of items like the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat that have really been making headway the past few years in the QSR sector. And, you know, in general, just a lot of restaurants having more plant-based items available. Um, does that encourage you that you're, you know, that what you're doing is, is having an impact and that, you know, people are interested in, in what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the success of Impossible and Beyond has been a rising tide that is lifting all boats in this space. It makes it clear that there is room for innovation in food. It makes it clear that there is a demand, both from consumers and from and for, from investors, for creating alternatives to animal products. 
and the widespread adoption in the last few years of fast food companies that are putting these products on the menu only portends good things for the future. So uh, I really believe that more and more people are going to be demanding these products and the success of those companies is leading many other companies, including, frankly, my own company, The Better Meat Co., uh, to have greater success than we would have had those companies not blazed a trail for us. So sustainability is, you know, a huge topic. And, you know, restaurant owners are concerned about sustainability. They're concerned about food waste. So what are some things that they should be thinking about now? And what can they do, you know, to have a more sustainable future? Well, one of the key things to think about right now is how much meat are you using? Offering plant-based options is great, but if nobody is ordering them, you're probably not actually reducing the amount of meat that you're serving. And so I like to think about just what targets can you reach? Now, you know, some people, when they think about sustainability targets, they're thinking, well, how much of our energy is coming from fossil fuels versus renewables? Well, an even easier and maybe cheaper way to think about it is how much of the food that we're serving contains meat? How many pounds of meat are we ordering per week or per month? And how can we reduce that? So blending is an easy way to do that. If you're serving burgers and people uh, really want to get burgers, you could serve blended burgers that will taste even better, that will be even more cost effective for you. So you can either lower your prices or increase your, your profit margin on that product and reduce the amount of meat that you're serving. Um, similarly, by offering uh, different types of discounts to make the plant-based options uh, stand out more and be more attractive to customers. So rather than just offering them, offering them at a discount has um, been shown to really change the game in terms of the demand for them. Making sure that your, your restaurant menu doesn't have a vegetarian section, but rather has plant-based options scattered throughout is another way to increase demand for them. It's been shown that uh, most meat consumers don't look at a plant-based section and that they're more likely to order the plant-based section, uh, excuse me, plant-based menu options if they're scattered throughout the menu. And then another is to not focus on what's not in the product and to focus instead on how much it tastes great or maybe the providence of it. So for example, talking about a meatless chili is far less appetizing than talking about, let's say, uh, you know, a hearty three bean chili. Uh, talking about, um, you know, a meat-free pasta is not nearly as good as talking about like a Tuscan tomato pasta. And so there's all these different types of ways of describing and placing these plant-based options that has been shown through real scientific research to actually increase demand for the product. So, you know, offering them is great, but marketing them in ways that science shows will increase demand for them will also help restaurateurs to uh, make sure that people are actually ordering these items. So what do you envision and hope that a restaurant menu of the future will look like? Well, no doubt that it will look different from today in some respects, but also the same in some respects. So it'll be the same in that they'll still be serving meat. However, that meat will not necessarily be all coming from animals. So maybe you'll have a uh, clean meat burger that is uh, the cheapest option on the menu. And then for somebody who wants more of like, you know, the... Um, antique experience, so to speak, like kind of the equivalent of like a horse-drawn carriage ride, they can get a burger that comes from uh, a once living animal. Um, maybe there will be blended options so that you can have uh, your own enjoyable hybridized meat. I also like to think about uh, restaurants that could have some type of a gimmick. So for example, if you think about right now, a restaurant that's brewing its own IPA. Well, 
what if they were brewing their own meat? So what if instead of having, you know, like a, a brew kit for beer, they had a brew kit for meat and they could just order little uh, stem cells and tea bags and put it in there and grow their own meat right there and make their own local artisanal meat that is unique to that restaurant. And you could have something really unique in terms of that experience. Or even uh, more entertaining, I think, would be to go to a restaurant where let's say they had a, a backyard and there was a pig who lived in the backyard and cells had been taken from that pig and you could eat sausage made from that pig cells and go tip your hat to the pig who's still alive and well and enjoying his life. Uh, those seem to me to be these kind of cool novel culinary experiences that future consumers may be interested in. It's kind of like if you think about, um, if you think about the time when milk had been uh, when cows were domesticated, so milk was being consumed, but before humans learned how to curdle milk, so there was no such thing as cheese. In that time, even though people were drinking milk, no one had ever thought about Gouda or Brie or Swiss or cheddar or any of the other types of culinary delights that people like about cheese today. It was, you know, cheese is a relatively novel food from the total human experience of going back, you know, for all of humanity's uh, hundred, multi-hundred thousand year history. Um, well, what culinary experiences are novel to us that we haven't even fantasized about today that will be common in the future and really delightful in the future that cellular agriculture will allow us to experience. I really think that the types of things that I just mentioned, like having you know countertop meat makers are within the realm of possibility that could allow for really interesting, novel and delightful culinary experiences that nobody has had yet. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. <laughs>